The International IVF Initiative is a worldwide non-profit education project for the assisted reproductive technologies community, sharing scientific and practical knowledge for embryologists, reproductive scientists and anyone working in the ART community. Each episode will share an insight into the world of IVF, along with profiles of legends within the world of ART, latest news and wisdom from our community. Welcome to another episode of the i3 podcast. You are about to hear one of our Beyond the Webinar sessions, which followed the Return to Cairo session. We'll make sure that there's a link to it in the show notes. Now, this session followed on from a previous podcast episode where Giles was in conversation with Dr. Catherine Warrillow, who is the founder and CEO of Life Air Systems. It was a fascinating discussion about the developments within the lab environment and the time that it's taken for these changes to be implemented. We'll also link to this in the show notes so you can listen back. So what you're going to hear is the conversation that happened after the webinar return to Cairo, where the discussion was about what had changed since the publication of the Cairo Consensus in 2017. We hope you enjoy it and do make sure you're listening to the end of the episode to find out how you can keep in touch with i3 and all the upcoming webinars that are planned. That was a mammoth session, wasn't it? So many questions. That was yeah. amazing. Lots of lots of detail. Well, thank you, Sangeeta, and thank you, Chelsea, and thank oh. you, Minara. These are so fun. I love doing these. You guys are great. Yeah, thank, great. You. thank you, Lars. Thank you, Katie. Thank you, Jacques, for the slide. Brilliant. And it showed by how many people turned up. So again, thank you from us. What did you think of it? It's an enormous amount of detail. I mean, if they got something out of this, I hope I did. I think this is fabulous. It's sometimes hard to get things across that actually you're making notes and enjoyed it very, very much. A little biased about the topic, probably. <laughs> Agreed, Jacques. Agreed. Yeah, and of course, we had we had you all in one place. That's you know, you know that's yeah. the idea. And then yeah. and then it'll be archived on you know online, so you know people can go there with their pen and paper and hopefully take notes. Yeah, you know those those videos, Charles. Amazing. Yeah, absolutely Amazing. great. My my favorite lab was in Lithuania, I think. Right? I mean, that, yes. That, that, oh, that, the that, one in Estonia. That was in amazing. Estonia. Was it Estonia? Yeah. Estonia. Yes. Yeah. Really, really very Beautiful. impressive. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, there's much more than video, but I thought that, you know, due to the, you know, the, you know, the amount of questions, we're going to cut it. So obviously you can see that on the site. It's great to see other labs. And I think other people like to see labs. I mean, you know, Lars, you've got a fantastic job. You go in there. Yeah. You see what people are doing, these new solutions. I've done some 300 audits or three days in and during my work with Cooper, I think. I don't know, must be more than a thousand coming up to, but that's two hours where you sort of just go in and say hello. These questions help everyone tremendously because, you know, it shows how people are thinking. It shows, you know, on whatever topic and not just lab construction and air. It shows what people are either doing or thinking about or concerned about. So these Q&As I think are There's vitally a question important. that I want to ask. It says one disinfectant vendor claims phenolic-based disinfectants do not have discernible VOCs. Is this accurate? What that means? Phenolic-based disinfectants. He's being it told it's like very aromatic compound when you say phenolic. Well, if it's aromatic, you'd think it would, you know, Chihana would have VOCs then if you can smell it, yeah, right? Definitely, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would probably ask for their evidence, their testing evidence. Oh, that's a good idea. Get the content. Yeah, not only the MSDS sheet, but also, you know, 
How did they test to make that statement? That's a pretty bold statement. I know. I thought so too. Okay. Somebody's asking about pine trees close to the building. And is there any risk from thinking meant pine for embryo culture? And in what concentration? Well, if you, no, can, if, you, if you can smell it in the lab, then that's... I know, nature. right? There's no VOC that's, that's, that's probably the concern. If I can smell it in the lab, then that yeah. may be an issue. Um, any, any natural smell usually is, has a VOC origin to it. That doesn't necessarily mean... VOC doesn't necessarily mean that you have a lower fertilization rate or it affects your embryo development. It, it could. And we, we know so little about it. And particularly, mm -hmm. the, I mean, what... What did Katie say? Ninety thousand. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot of work to be so, done. You, know, you could spend a lifetime and still don't figure it out. If there's a concern there, and the data, the outcome data is worrying, that may be an issue. But you know, just pine trees surrounding a lab. I, I think that's every other lab in North America is surrounded by pine trees. So I, <laughs> that by itself should not be a concern. Somebody asked about light bulbs. Do they release VOCs? Yes. Yes. Amazing. You need to have yellow light. And yellow light doesn't mean that it looks yellow. No, it's bright light. But it's a certain wavelength. And they are music. Fantastic. So Somebody are we talking about LED or, or just, you know, the old-fashioned light bulbs of sure? Because... The old ones uh, that you were saying, uh, you know, you use um, light and yellow light is uh, a certain spectrum. Uh, mm. But you the difference between them and so on and we usually sort of put them in and uh, screw them in really hard it would best to come on the top and change the bolts so you don't come in and do some work so you have to be oh, able to in the inner ceiling lars i just wonder if it's the photocatalytic activity of the light wave in the ambient air or is it just the bulb is releasing this voc but the catalytic is also some that uh, actually produce byproducts that you shouldn't use you get the ozone and you get ozone. yeah but which one is more it's ozone and one more that's more just put it away there's one more and we see the acetone i think wasn't it from pco from uh photocatalytic i think it's also acetone let's see here there there's been some documentation of aldehydes produced not consistently but there's it's been documentation of that but it's primarily ozone. So is it a good idea to use uh, some filters like light filters to avoid some certain wavelength? Is it the right way to approach this or is it just use a specific wavelength lamp? You just say uh, yellow light and then they know exactly where the, the spectrum of the light is. So then they can give you. They don't look different at all from others. So you have to ask them where. One of the things that I would like to discuss in the meeting was, you know, when we are designing the lab for the, you know, for the ventilations of the, the positions of the ventilations in the lab, and there are some dead areas are forming, and there are some areas which are kind of more actively have an airflow, and then it's actually needs to be designed properly. But uh, for example, when you change some instruments places when and ventilation and the exit station ends up within the in the same alignment it causes lots of problems quite easy uh it's called spreaders and they are hanging like half a sock down you don't have this that i saw in all the labs that they didn't put them in it's actually you know the holes where they come in 
yes. before we were always changing it was going but if you put uh, these socks I, I have some pictures of it and you just put them it's like uh, half a sock hanging in the whole lab and it's spreading evenly the, the air and it doesn't affect your system so you have the same uh, sort of uh, spreading all over the, the lab and you don't have to consider where they're going to put the XD station, where I'm going to, no, don't need it. We've done it for years and years. I see. But most of the labs doesn't have this and having a huge ventilation in their lab, they always have this problem of improper, you know, air ventilation through the system, which the dishes are being exposed to and things like that. So, yeah might be another thing to mention. So Jihan, something that um, we're working on with Lehigh University uh, is using CFD or computational fluid dynamics to address mm -hmm. exactly what you're saying. Nice. So you have your final diffusers, you have your returns, you have your positioning of your hoods, uh, your workstations, you know, your micro manipulation scope, and it can actually model where is the optimal airflow and where are the dead spots and what can you do about it? Yeah. So it's still in the development process, but it's something to negate exactly what you're saying um, and to solve it. Because you're right, you don't want you don't want dead spots, and you certainly yeah. don't want yeah areas where your dishes are exposed not to have um, the air that's coming out of the final diffusers. Yeah. I think it's one of the biggest problems after the pressurized doors. You know, not easy to open, but everyone is worried when they are doing micro injection if something is blowing and you don't know when it's going to start blowing because uh, the rate is constantly changing. It's just yeah. worrying at some point. It's an, also another way you can do to get rid of the VLCs from plastic is that you have a pass through, uh, like a, a cabinet that has two openings. So you put them in from your storage. And then they stand there and they fume off because it's a ventilated. And then when you have hours, days, or whatever you select, then you open it up and they are clean. And that has also been installed in, in um, the latest Northern Clinic. And I didn't do it, so I got just to see it because I've been looking for it. Because that installed the, the VOCs in plastics. So you can use them immediately because we usually air them for 24 hours before we pipette anything yeah it's important to have negative mm. you know ventilation negative pressure uh, yeah. if that's the right way of saying it negative pressure for off-gassing plastic wear and yeah. uh, i often see it in uh, laminar flow units that are not necessarily sucking it up and uh, no. you know and that's un unfortunately it comes out horizontally and what's the purpose of that we usually use uh, class two ones yeah, yeah. because then it's recirculating and yeah. uh, and the, the problem when you're using that, it's, it's actually one decimeter from the back and from the side and in front that it doesn't work optimal. So you have to have them in the, the center and you shouldn't clutter anything because it's three times the diameter of everything you put in, in a lot bench or anything that cause uh, currents and it disturbs. Yeah. So what other spaces does one use negative pressure? So gas cylinder rooms, storage rooms, which yes. do it for the for the masturbatorium, lots of plastic. That issue came up in the question and answers. So I mean, so what what area what areas do you use negative suction? Because it's it's very affordable to do. The more areas you have with negative suction, the the lower your costs are in the 
total planning. They have any negatives because you have all the ventilation and gas stations, everything, filler tanks of liquid nitrogen we have outside in a special room. And then we have a hatch for the liquid nitrogen so we can fill it. So, so it's in a, in a separate, of course, it's in a separate area, separate room. Separate. But you're saying it's not in, on the main system, it's just a room. We can have the service without disturbing anything. Yeah, okay. Also, can we discuss about the temperature of the laboratory? Because I think it's the, one of the most important components in many aspects. Like, of course, the solubility of the gases change with the temperature first thing first and the second thing is you know uh, some laboratories prefer to work in higher temperatures and this makes a huge impact in the cryopreservation protocols as well vitrification solutions temperatures as well i think it might be a good idea to speak about the optimal temperature range within the laboratories yeah i think i saw that question we just weren't able to get to it mm -hmm. um I mean, we usually recommend, you know, 68 to 72 and then less than 50% RH within the laboratories. Half of our audience is uh, non-Fahrenheit, non so, so you're, you're, yeah. Yes. So 20 to 24 degrees centigrade is what the consensus meeting said. I was a bit surprised about that range. I thought 20, 22 to 24, 22 to 25 makes sense to me. Um, but 20, I was a little surprised about. We have 20, 24 in all the clinics in, in yep. Scandinavia. So it probably comes from Scandinavia. Well, I think we should wrap it up, guys. Um, you said you've got some papers coming out or some, or some abstracts. We have a manuscript, I believe October, November, an RBMO that's coming out, and then a chapter um, in a textbook, Clinical Embryology in 23. Um, but we have ongoing work. Mina asked a great question. It was spot on, which is the work we're doing right now. Um, that, that's going to take time. As Jacques mm -hmm. said, I mean, we, we know a lot, but we don't know a lot. There's still a lot to learn. Got you. Well, with that, I will thank you all so much. Thank you again for your time and effort. Um, and uh, we'll see you again soon, hopefully, in the flesh. Who can tell? That would be wonderful. Thank you, yes. Giles. Thank right. you, everyone. Thank you, Thank you very much. Be sure to visit ivfmeeting.com where you can watch our back catalogue of webinars. Plus, you can sign up for future ones, download our electronic membership card, and find all our social media so we can stay in touch.